I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on School Violence. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lisa Evers. And you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both radio and TV, free of charge at LisaEvers.com. Now, in this episode, we're talking about keeping our children safe while they're at school so that they can actually get an education. The New York City school year got off to a violent start this year with an increase of deadly weapons brought into the schools and the murder of a 15-year-old boy in a classroom. Now, some say the students aren't to blame and that they may be bringing weapons to school to protect themselves in a dangerous, out-of-control environment. Other voices are calling for more metal detectors and tighter security, but there are concerns that tighter security will create an atmosphere criminalizing all of the students. Let's find out what our panel has to say about this right now. Joining me is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Brian Favors. He's an educator. Um, his website is culturallyresponsiveteaching.com. His, his company is Breaking the Cycle Consulting Services. He works with a lot of the students in city schools. Brian, great to have you with us. Great to be here, always. Also with us is Matthew. He's a 13-year-old eighth grader in a charter school. He attended public schools, and he's also attended a number of our street soldiers' uh, public events and town halls. So, Matthew, great to have you here with us in I'm studio. Glad to be here. Appreciate it. Also with us is Lynette Townsley. She's the NAACP Youth Advisor. She's a parent of two boys, and she is the manager of after-school programs. Lynette, great to have you with us. Thank you. Matthew, help us understand what's it like for students going to school right now in terms of concerns about their safety? Um, when kids go to school nowadays, they're worried about problems that they have with other people. So they start to feel unsafe. And honestly, that's not what school was made for, for kids to be feel unsafe. But it's problems around the community that start these problems. And give us an idea. When you talk about problems with other kids, what kinds of problems did you see happening, you know, do you see happening around you or do you, do you hear about from your friends and, and your classmates? Some, um, some of the problems are start when people, they either want a crowd to be popular, to be in a certain group so that they won't, so that they can be popular in school or just to have a name around the school or around their community. Most of the time it's based on personal problems that they get themselves into and don't know they they don't want to go to an adult or a teacher because they're scared of what they'll be judged as and that's got to be Brian as an educator and as a parent that's got to break your heart when you hear that the kids feel like they're on their own they're, they are and then not only that they're walking into schools that are often hostile going through metal detectors um, you know, I know students that get stopped and frisked on the way to school, and then they come into school and they got beef, you know, issues with the, with this group of young people who are from this project. And the school, most schools aren't villages. You know, most of the kids aren't learning in school how to even break that cycle. Uh, most teachers and most of us, I was in 22 schools last year. Um, most of our schools have not been prepared to deal with that. Most of the schools are as scared of the students as everyone else. And a lot of these, and you remember when I met you, I was here with the Bushwick 32 from that school that sued the NYPD. We had a village. In 12 years, we had two fights. But we had a staff that was intentional about learning about cultural competence and building a community so that when kids had conflict, because we had Bloods, Crips, Latin Kings in that school, they had people they could go to, mediate those conflicts. We had relationships with the community we could bring folks in. And most schools 
don't have that village. So our kids are having to be scared of one another as well as the teachers and, 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 and the law enforcement that's in school. And that's a recipe for disaster. And that also explains why half of our kids aren't graduating. And what, with a lot of the problems. Lynette, as a parent and also you work as a, an after-school manager with a lot of kids in that capacity as well, what do you see happening? Because people who are not familiar with, the, with urban life or with the city school system, they, don't, they just don't get it. They're like, why are there so, so many weapons? And the NYPD is telling us there was about a 48% increase in the number of weapons just brought in this first month of the school year. Unfortunately, I think that our schools are not equipped with the resources needed to deal with the children's conflicts of interest or any issues that they have. Um, my youngest son, for instance, he went to a school that was co-located and had a... What is what is explain what co-located co means? Where it was two different schools in one school. In one building. In one building. So with that, sometimes you get the students that you know feel they're better than the other ones or there's some conflict and my son didn't start it but it was a big fight and I actually took him out of school until they had a meeting with the parents and the students to try to help find out what happened but my son was out I took I kept him out of school for a whole week because you were concerned so, about his safety about his safety not only his safety but the other um children's and it was so bad that school safety had to get involved the borough um leader for school safety but in the beginning they wasn't doing it they was just telling me to bring my son back to school and I said no until you address this issue he can't come in learning thinking that oh am I going to have a fight again or is somebody going to jump me? And, and Darren, in, in terms of the atmosphere, from a, from a law enforcement perspective, a lot of people are saying, you know what, just put the metal detectors in. There's metal detectors in only about 6% of the city schools. And some people say that's the answer, and then the kids won't be bringing weapons in. But is it that simple? I don't think the metal detectors are the solution or the panacea to this problem. I think this is something that's more of a social construct that's going bad. And so oftentimes one of the first things that we speak of is we think of police to come in with the immediate arrests or apprehension techniques, so on and so forth. I think that the police can infuse a strategy with educators, but that strategy has to evolve around not arresting but educating the students. So you can have officers that work in each and every school. Now keep in mind, there's not a one fixed solution. You can, but you need to have officers that are working in the school, working hand in hand with the educators to determine the pulse or the propensities for violence. But in doesn't these that bother? But doesn't that bother you when you have an 11, 12, and 13 year old kid saying, "We're on our basically, we're on our own here. There's no adult we can trust to talk to and say we've got a problem. Something's about to pop off, and we don't know what to do." And that and that evolves around the educator and the police working hand in hand. The educator has to be at the forefront of this. The educator is the person that's going and to drive this. And everybody jump in, please. Brian, what do you think but about that? at the same token, I feel that it's not, you, we can't have a police state in these schools because then we have a situation where you have this distrust that happens outside of the school, where it's, let's say a kid gets searched and frisked by the police, and then they come into school and they see the police as their adversary. They need to change Rob, and Brian, what do you that think? strategy. Well, I mean, that would be ideal, and I think that would be an ideal situation, but when you have a contentious relationship between the students in the community and the police and the teachers, I mean, it's, it's, it's in your criminology, it's just pure social bonding theory. A lot of our kids don't feel bonded to the teachers, to the school. You walk into schools where they have metal detectors and treat you nasty. These aren't, most all my schools have metal detectors. I'm, I'm in the East New York and in Bushwick, but none of my white colleagues 
went to schools with metal detectors. The relationship is not the same. So it would be great if we had law enforcement that we trusted, brothers like you that we felt like had our backs, and teachers that we trusted. But most students that I work with don't feel like they can even trust those individuals to understand those issues. A lot of reasons he talks about kids aren't going to teachers to have these conversations because they don't have real relationship with these teachers. But they don't goes, feel they feel like they'll make that'll make the situation even worse. But that goes into a, a cultural and organizational change that needs to occur. And let, not let's just talk the about that. We need to take a right. short but, break, okay. but we'll, we'll talk about that because there, there's a lot of layers to this, right. but I'd like to try to you know, pull them apart and see what we're really talking about and dealing with here. This is Street Soldiers. We're talking about the rise in school violence. What can we do to keep our kids safe? We'll be right back. Yo, yo, what's up? This is me, DMC, in the place to be. And the only place for you to ever be is right here listening to Lisa Evers on Street Soldiers. Hurrah! Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about school violence. There has been a dramatic rise in the number of deadly weapons brought into city classrooms and also a rise in incidents as well. We're talking about that with our panel. Joining me is Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and also criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Brian Favors. He's an educator. His uh, company is called Breaking the Cycle Consulting Services. He's, his website is culturallyresponsiveteaching.com, and he works in many of the schools in some of the most challenged neighborhoods in the city. Brian, great to have you with great us. Great to be here. Also with us is Matthew. He's th a 13-year-old eighth grader in a charter school. He attended a public school. He's also attended a number of our Street Soldiers Push for Peace Town Hall events. Great to have you with us in the studio, Glad Matthew. Also with us is Lynette Townsley. She's an NAACP youth advisor, parent of two boys, and also manager of an out-of-school program. Lynette, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. When you hear this, as, as a mother, as an educator yourself, as somebody who spends a lot of time with our kids and with our youth, does it break your heart that they don't feel safe just trying to get an education? Absolutely. It's the all of our, our responsibility to educate the whole child, not just academically, but emotionally and socially as well. And I think when it comes to the emotional and social development, we're not meeting the standards that our youth need today. And that's where the conflicts come in. You know, why, why do you have a need to bring a knife or a gun? It's because you're trying to deal with a conflict and you don't know any other way to deal with it. So that's our responsibility as adults to help the youth. And I don't think having cops with badges in schools is the answer. I think we need other resources like guidance counselors, social workers, conflict resolution um, people to help the students. And, and counselors, counselors, like, like yeah. just like guidance counselors, mm -hmm. like you said. Matthew, what about that? Do you think that that's the, do you think that that's the answer or do you think I that think, that would help? I think that would, that would help a lot because most of these problems start from groups, groups that look at each other and think, oh, we're not friends or we're not cool. So if we could, if everybody in that school or that building or that community could, um, could actually associate with one another, have people guide them into being friends again, not having so many problems, I think that that would stop a lot more of the problems instead of having kids come to the school seeing metal detectors and a whole bunch of cops just surrounding them feeling like is a whole bunch of criminals in the school. Brian, what about the what, what about the layers and, and also the layers of adult supervision too? Talking about guidance counselors, does there need to be something else besides teachers, school safety and school safety officers as the only options? You know what? In some schools it's the guidance counselors, in some schools it's the history teacher, in some schools it's the we need people 
who know how to play this role, period. And my concern is I, I believe we need more guidance counselors and social workers and whatnot, but they have to be culturally competent. I see in the schools that I'm in a lot of guidance counselors who are not prepared to deal with the Brevoort uh, 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 Marcy beef right. that brings its way into the school, and not only that, we want to make sure that not only are they um, are they are they are they are they safe in school. That when they leave, because most of the schools I'm in, they're not bringing guns in because it's metal detectors. But guess what? The neighborhood's not safe. I still hear gunshots at night in Bed Stuy. But one one of the great things about the students that I brought out here years ago was we were in a school where they were learning about how those divisions were systematic from the beginning. They were taking African studies, Latin American studies, and we were having after-school men's groups where we were arguing, how can we be so safe here? How can we build this outside? And I remember after we did this show and we mobilized around the Bushwick 32, our enrollment was bigger than it had ever been the next year because people were coming to our school because it was a safe haven. Right. And I think when we start to create villages where kids feel safe, where they're connected to community, we'll see a drop in violence. Because even when you have metal detectors, all my schools are in East New York and Bushwick, they have metal detectors. Maybe there's no shooting in the school, but guess what happens Friday night? Um, so I, I do agree there has to be a shift in culture, but how do you go about making, uh, providing educators and people who are responsible uh, to make sure that they're culturally competent and prepared to deal with these issues. And these issues are complex because our kids are dealing with the systematic, sociological, and economic impact of generations and generations and generations of poverty. But is it also because many adults, Darren Porcher, let's face it, many adults are afraid of our youth. That's as soon as they get a certain size, they're afraid of the youth, they're afraid of the youth culture, they're afraid of a lot of it. You're and they don't understand it, and they're just afraid, period. You're referring to implicit bias, and absolutely, unfortunately, we as African Americans have an implicit bias towards other African Americans. We have a perceived, we, we, gain, we see a perceived threat based on those individuals. But just to piggyback on what this gentleman mentioned, we look at the organizational and cultural changes, and not just the police department, but educators. It needs to be a situation where is the educator needs to be at the forefront, the police person should be at the back end. Because I see many times in these schools, you have a dean of discipline and that's the person that manages a lot of these conflicts that happen in these schools. Oftentimes, that person is incapable. They've been placed in that position by default. So what they, they you can still have that person at the forefront, but just provide them with the additional resources, the intelligence that tells them this is what's happening. In addition to that, as the young man mentioned, the conflicts that happen in the neighborhood, this is something where is the Community Affairs Bureau in the NYPD can be a, a, of great assistance to whereas you have these conflicts such as a gang rivalry or something to that effect that's occurring in these neighborhoods. And so you need someone that can have more of a softer approach to translate that information that's happening in those neighborhoods to the educators that are in the school. That way the educators can be better prepared in dealing with these situations. Bear in mind, we're not looking to erect a police state. We want a state that allows these students the ability to learn. Lynette, what about the changes in society? Because the you know our society, our culture has changed so much. Kids who are now 9, 10, 8, 9, 10 years old are inundated with all sorts of things through social media, through, just through the world, the, the way everything, the digital explosion. And a lot of parents aren't equipped to handle that. Do you think that the schools are not equipped to handle that either? Absolutely not. I know when it came to my son's incident in his school and he had the fight, it started from Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it was, they were arguing over Facebook. What surprised me is that the management in the school, the administration knew about this and did nothing about it. So 
normally what happens, it happens when they're not in school. But then when they're in school, that's when, you know, their feelings and emotions get the best of them and they don't know how to deal with it. So I had to force the administration as well as the school safety to address the issue. I got a, an opportunity to meet the student as well as the parent. And they were great people. I just, and, you know, I, once my, my, my child and the other student talked, you know, they realized, look, this, you know, shouldn't have happened. You know, they weren't friends, but it was where my son could go back to school. And ultimately, my son was in high school. This student was in middle school and hit my son first. And I wanted to make sure, and, and that was what was stressful for me because the middle school was ready, all, automatically thought it was my son because he was older and it wasn't. And I think oftentimes when you have the co-locations, when you have these students that are dealing with emotional and social issues and, and pressures and, and, and really nobody to talk to. And then you have the police. It's like this can be a record and stop them from their future. From anything else. What, 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 what There's one point, I just not to cut you off. What happens in a lot of these schools is all schools in New York State fall under something that's referred to as the VEDA report. And that's basically the violence that's occurred in all schools in the state. Any school administrator is terrified of having a, a, have a, a mark on that VEDA report. So oftentimes you will have school administrators that will attempt to minimize the violence that's happened in these schools. So when you hear when a situation like yours that occurred, that came from an administrator that doesn't want to be appear as a person that has a greater propensity and in their school, Brian, which is that? a problem, what which is that? a problem. So we go back to, and I'll go to you in one second, what goes back to the organizational and cultural um, change. We need to be accepting of, look, we have these issues. Let's troubleshoot them from a qualitative perspective. Let me ask Brian about this because you, you deal with a lot of the youth. Are the pressures, there, are, there is a lot more pressure on our kids, right? It's, it's a lot, and they're exposed to so much. I mean, my kids on my block, you know, it'll be a shooting, and then they'll see it, literally, and then 10 minutes later after, you know, everything, they're right back out on the stoop. And they're, they're exposed. Our kids are exposed to all this. And, it's, and this isn't new because I was just watching Boys in the Hood, which is almost 30 years old. And if you remember <laughs> the first scene, they look at the dead body. Then they see the Reagan picture, which is symbolic to the war on drugs, where it's being brought in. Trey's daddy was saying, we don't bring the guns in. We're dealing with the same issues. And in economically disadvantaged communities, you're going to be, there's a, a bigger crime element with unemployment. Right now, they say one in 10 New York uh, City students is in is homeless. Right. And in the next few years, it's going to be one in seven. Our kids are being exposed to more at a young age. And it's a, uh, why wouldn't kids think that grabbing a gun is conflict resolution? You has a, have a president who says, I mean, the, the, the violence is everywhere. Socialization it's a violent, that. the music, it's a violent culture. So to assume that in a, in a, in an environment where you don't have a village, where we're not learning how to do these different things, where you have, t uh, you know, I live, I live across the street from boys and girls. So a lot of times I know about the beat before I go to the school because I'm tied to the community. Once upon a time, teachers used to live in the communities with their students. Now, most of the schools I'm in, by the time the sun goes down, them teachers are gone from your school. They're not around there. They're not staying in that. And, and I notice my kids will talk to me about things that they won't talk to the other teachers because they know I heard the gunshots last night, too.
And they know you care. I think that's right. an important thing. I'm going to start the next segment with you. We need to take a short break. This is Street Soldiers. We're talking about school violence. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. Yo, what up? This your homie, Ace Hood, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real poly tricks, and real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about school violence, a rise, a sharp rise in the number of deadly weapons being brought into city classrooms. Why is that happening? That's what we're talking about with our panel. Joining me for this episode, Dr. Darren Porcher. He's a former NYPD lieutenant and criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you. Always great to be here. Also with us is Brian Favors. He's an educator. His uh, company is Breaking the Cycle Consulting Services, and his website is Culturally Responsive Teaching. Dot com. Brian, great to have you with great us. Great to be here. Also with us is Matthew. He's a 13-year-old eighth grader and currently in a charter school. He attended a public school and has attended many of our Push for Peace events. Matthew, great to have you with Glad us. Glad to be here. And also with us is Lynette Townsley. She's an NAACP youth advisor, parent of two boys, and after-school program, uh, out-of-school after school and out of school at other times, program manager. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Matthew, where are the kids getting the weapons from? The kids are getting their weapons from the ideas in their head that say, I can't I can't talk about the situation. I have to use violence as the answer. And I think that this could be cut off um, at a young age if schools didn't only have common core classes. If they had classes that taught kids how to survive in the wild or how to how to communicate or show their um, feelings to one another so that they wouldn't just be all riled up and then one time all their feelings just pop and then it ends up in a fight or they end up getting a weapon to come. Now tell us what happened with you because you're a good you're a good student you're very culturally aware you're very community minded but you were driven to some kind of behavior tell us about that. Um, one day um, I was in a public school I was 18 and a, kid, a group of kids, um, I saw my brother playing with um, an older group of kids. They were two, year, two years older than us. So they're, um, I, my brother and them, they were play fighting. I thought they were real fighting because I didn't know the boys. So I jumped in, I pushed him. And then Michael, and then my brother, he comes, I don't know when, and says, what are you doing? I was like, I thought y'all was fighting. But what really happened was that they were play fighting. So then I start play fighting with them. And we continue this every day after school. But then after a while, I started getting home late, which means I started finishing my homework um, later, which affected me and my school and academics. So then I decided I, would, I decided to stop playing so much after school and go straight home to do what I had to do. But um, the kids, they didn't want to stop playing. They wanted to keep playing. So every day they, um, we would just continue doing the same thing. After a while, it got annoying because when I, when I wanted to stop playing, they didn't want to stop playing. So eventually, so they didn't respect your choice. Yes, they didn't respect my choice. So eventually, I didn't want to go. I I didn't feel comfortable going to a teacher, or because then I will be viewed as people say a snitch. I will be grouped in somebody that they won't want to mess with. They won't want to be friends with. So then, I decided to bring a knife to school. It wasn't it wasn't to stab anybody, but it was to show them that I'm serious now. This is my I'm not playing anymore. That. If I don't want to play, then I don't want to play. You have to respect what I want to do. So when you told them, listen, I can't do this anymore. I need to go home and do my homework. I got to worry about my schoolwork. Did they make fun of you? Did they intimidate you? They didn't make fun of me, but 
a pressured they, you? They were like, I don't care. And they, or they, yeah, or they pressured me. They'd be like, come on, come on. Um, they'd be like, come on, come on. We just playing around. And then after a while, it just got so annoying that that I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so you brought the knife to tell, let them know you were serious. Yes. And then what happened? But um, they never they never found out I had the knife because um it never got to that. It um one day when I was in school it was a, it was in my book bag, and I opened up my book bag and it fell, it fell out. So a boy, a boy that um didn't like me at the time we weren't friends. He told the principal on me, and so um the principal told me to bring my stuff, and um he he asked me he said do you have a weapon on you? Um my first answer was no because I didn't want to, I didn't know what the consequences were I didn't know what would happen, and then I, he asked me again, and this time I decided to say yes because I knew that if I lied again then the consequences would be worse, so I decided to tell him where it was he told me, and um I ended up. I ended up getting um, a superintendent suspension. I had to go to a whole nother school for a couple, um, I think for a week or two. And then, but then. Did the they ever ask you, when you were there with the principal, did they ever ask you why? Yeah, did they, you feel you needed to bring a, a, a knife to school? They did ask me why, and that day I did tell them, but I, I, I got a severe consequence for um, bringing the knife for school. I did deserve a consequence, but then the kids that were because this would be considered bullying. The kids the kids that were... Sounds um, like it. Yeah, the kids that were bullying me um, was called Nothing Happened to Them. I gave them a list. I gave them the names, and they t they said they talked to the kids, but nothing happened. Also. And the kids were still at that school when you came back from your suspension? Yes. Darren, what do you think about well, that? Well, just the superintendent's suspension is mandatory when you when someone is caught with a weapon in a school. So the principal doesn't have any leeway with that. My heart goes out to you in that situation. Um, one of the things that I think about in terms of how could he better connect with an administrator, I think that there are two factions. Oftentimes you have that socialization piece that dictates, look, I don't want to be a snitch. I want to be a part of the culture. I think that if you can introduce people that are either prior gang members or people that have just gone through the reentry process and they're looking to turn things around, and these are people that have a level of street credibility, so to speak. You partner those individuals with professionals, and then you have team building, like maybe after school during a lunch break, you have this person that has that credibility where people are willing to accept them as somebody that I can talk to. Brian, and Brian then you what have about the that? This comes, this comes back to this idea of like some, some, some type of counseling or some, especially it's, for the it's, boys. It's interesting that he says that because we used to do that. We used to bring a lot of, at, at, when I was teaching in Bushwick, you weren't allowed to flag in the school. And we had OGs that would enforce that because this was safe space in the hood. And, 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 and I agree with him. The only problem is a lot of the people that my kids would listen to that I work out with at the park, they can't get into the schools because they got felonies and different things. But if you can find people with the community, we used to work with Make the Road, if you can find organizations that love the kids, that the kids can respect, and I always say the kids need to have networks that for Christmas vacation, when the teachers are gone, they can still go to when the lights go out, right. when the sun goes down. Right. But I agree with you in that regard, that we have to have some people that the community, that the kids will respect, that know what it's like to go through these situations. Um, because right now you have a lot of, most of the teachers that are teaching our kids have never even lived 
in these neighborhoods. But see, this is one of, one of the, the, the head America. of the school. Right, right. It's right. one of those things. You have with Teach for America, you have people that come from the Midwest, and what they do is they'll work in these socially, economically deprived communities with the expectation. It's not the expectation. It's a contractual agreement. You work in these schools, and what we'll do is we'll reduce what your loan is. I understand it, but at the same token, these are people that don't have the cultural but could, awareness. can they be given mentioned. cultural competency? Or well, can I mean, they be... I, that, that's what we do, and that's a process for those who really want it. You talk about being culturally competent, it's not a workshop, That's right. a, but it's a skill set. But it's I think like what she did, she's an example of cultural competence. She saw what happened. She went to the school. Right. She worked it out. And I believe when you talk about creating a culture, I believe if you were to employ five people that had the, the community sake, that, that spent time in buildings, you could change the whole cultures of school. Because these are individuals that can bring bloods and crips together that can bring people together and can have those conversations like she did, where they realize they don't even want to fight. What do you but mean? Man, let's be fair, too, though. If you, you have parents, you have, you have parents that are, that are not, not that educated, some of them, they get, they're very intimidated by the school. Right. They really they don't have that. They just don't know how to negotiate it, and it's, people right. don't really want to negotiate with them. Right. You but know, there, there's again. a stigma. But you get those that can, because right. every school has, has concerned parents. Right. That's a fallacy that, and, and you're right, a lot of people don't have the skill set, but I believe every community has individuals that, um, you know, that the could be, person. and especially if you could employ some of these people. I know people all the time that I'm working out with that they got all this wisdom. They might have the cut on their face because they've been through it. Right. But if we could find a way to employ and get them, because those are the ones who, and a lot of my kids just need, you know, there's a shortage of fathers. Right. Um, if we could, you know, men's some adult males those that kind can of give programs. Them, give them so some we're, those we're skills. Focus, we're focusing on the socially economically deprived schools. We have affluent schools that are experiencing the same problems, and in terms of weapons, things to that effect, bullying, um, the stuff that's happening online. So the, you, it's not a one fix all, one fix everything solution. You have to have an amalgamation of different points that you can approach these schools with, because what happens in Forest Hills that's a, that's is a very different than what happens in East, threats, East New York. And all that stuff. But I think again, this is the right, and we issue. don't want to stigmatize. We don't want to stigmatize the, the urban population or our exactly. communities of color. But we it, all there's, experience there's a, a cycle of situations right. that are unique to our community. Look right. at the opioid crisis. That fuels a lot of these issues that we have in these schools. But I think what he said is the issue. At no time for our youth should we have a zero tolerance. So there should not be a time where you can you say you have to automatically get a superintendent suspension. You need to find out what's the issue. But what this is what happened. I'm saying is like you as can't a, have zero tolerance. As a supervisor. And, me, and even as me, I'm no I'm the way I am with my children because I had to be a PTA president. I was the PTA president for my children from um, daycare center to middle school. I wasn't the secretary or just a concerned parent. You were I was running the PTA it. You were running it. I love it. Because yeah. I had to be. Right. I was on the PTA, the PTA president of the school. I was on the president's council. I would go to the meetings at Tweed. I read the A660. I read the A655. I knew what the school was supposed to do when it came to um, disciplining the students. And they're not going by those guidelines. And what's that the they A6 have, and what's the A sixty five? Zero tolerance. What's the A sixty five? Those it... are the regulations for the um PTAs that and the SLTs that work within the schools that shows it's a great um program when you look at it and then you read it on paper, but it's not happening. They're, when it's they not, not discipline effective. our children, it is not supposed to be zero tolerance, and you just automatically have to get a superintendent suspension. We have the power to say this situation is not that. 
It's something else. You, you get more. Matthew, go I, ahead. Wait, go wait. ahead. And I feel like um, I feel like when um, schools, I, I understand that they want to hire people with the with one of the best education. I went to best colleges, but then again, we need experienced people in the school that has been through what we've been through. Because if you haven't been if you haven't been in the communities that we have, you don't know what we're feeling at the time. You don't know what we're going through, which also affects our education, which can, which basically affects our whole life because education is key. And how did you feel after that suspension? Because was that the first time you got in trouble like that? Yes, that was the first time I ever had a severe consequence. And after that, I realized that, I realized that it was, I couldn't, I couldn't make those same choices again because if I did, then that was the end of it. But if I was if I was to think of new ways to handle situations, to go to someone that I trust, that I can talk to, then I would not only would I handle the situation better, the person I, I got into a um a problem with will learn how to deal with this situation. I th I, I think it's incredible I think it's incredible how you handled it. I think it's amazing how you're explaining it and I think your understanding and your commitment to your education where these bad consequences came from you actually being victimized in a situation you still empowered yourself to keep uh, going on with your education so I know I salute you and I know everybody watching this right now and listening Absolutely. to this does too real general in the game that's right definitely the product of a village right because I know a lot of good kids who make that you know what would have happened if somebody would have came and pressed you and you did something that you that that you could never come back from right. but this is the possibility when you have loved caring individuals around that help them to process it this should be the norm but i just exactly. want to go into one i'm, I'm sorry, sorry darren i'm sorry we need to take a short break this is street soldiers i'm your host lisa evers we're talking about violence in our schools we'll be back right after this hey this is rhapsody and you're listening to street soldiers with lisa evers where we talk about power but also push for peace welcome back to street soldiers i'm your host lisa evers in this episode we're talking about school violence a dramatic rise in weapons being brought into city classrooms we want to know why that's what we're talking about with our panel joining us dr darren porcher he's a former mypd lieutenant Lieutenant and also a criminal justice professor. Darren, great to have you with us. It's always a pleasure. Also with us is Brian Favors. He's an educator. His website is culturallyresponsiveteaching.com. His company is Breaking the Cycle Consulting Services. He works with many of our students in the city's toughest and most challenged neighborhoods. Brian, great to have you. Great to be here. Also with us is Matthew. He's a 13-year-old eighth grader in a charter school. He attended public schools and attended our uh, has attended our Push for Peace town hall shows and participated. Matthew, great to have you. Glad to be here. And uh, also with us is Lynette Townsley. She's an NAACP youth advisor, parent of two boys, and also the program manager for out-of-school programs. Thank great to have you with us. Brian, when you hear, uh, hear Matthew's story about what he went through, what doesn't make sense and what does make sense to you about that? Well, I think the blessing of what, um, what we see with him is we see that he learned from it and he had a community and he had resources that kind of helped him through it, even though he was a victim in it. But I think he's not the norm. I think most times, this is a blessing that this happened, but good kids that aren't protected end up bringing that knife and then their whole, you know, they say once you get suspended, your trajectory changes significantly. And Even you go in on graduation. that track. That, that yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I think that that's great. But, but, I, but I think it, what we have to go back to is why aren't our kids safe to begin with? Right. And, and what why are we going to do? What are we going to do to make sure that 
um, because these things happen every day. Because there are incidents like this, and the head of the school safety officers union said that that a lot of the rise in weapons he believes is because good kids like Matthew, not to use that word, but you know, kids who have, are not in trouble, who are really focused on their education, are bringing weapons to school because they don't feel safe. He says that's why the number is going up. Because they're not. And even this case that we saw in the Bronx, I think there were uh, homophobic slurs and whatnot. But these things happen all the time in schools. And if the teacher, a lot of teachers say, look, I'm a math teacher. Right. You know, when I do workshops, I'm not. not but if you don't, side. if you can't make a, a safe environment, I know classrooms where kids don't feel safe to raise their hand and be smart. Right. Because comments and, and you see teachers teaching while these conflicts are, are, are going on and 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 that's not um, there's no way that that our kids can maximize their potential Dar in those Dar environments Darren what can, what do you think can be done well the core of all of this is bullying that's the foundation to this so that being said we need to deploy the proper resources to address and attack this issue we need subject matter experts that can focus on this aspect of bullying we need to have that open lane for students where they can instantaneously reach out to someone and they can do this confidentially but it has to be an avenue that's set in play and there has to be numerous resources in play. There needs to be educators, there needs to be police people, and there needs to be social workers. The three members can triangulate you, a solution. Do you think this is a new territory with this, this, this is not a new territory. neighborhood policing extension of neighborhood policing? Could this be new territory th for that? It could be, but also the social media piece, the things it's that happen huge. on the internet. So you have this amalgamation of circumstances that need to be poured into this team of qualified professionals professionals, and I think that that can be in great assistance. But the key, one of the things that I say is, like I mentioned earlier, it's the confidentiality aspect, that individual having the ability to report this to someone else and not have their name be a part of this, whereas or that be professional... be labeled a snitch or, right, or whereas be that identified. Professional, what that professional does is, now they've been alerted to it, now let me see if I, I can identify what this pattern is I know, in this I, classroom. It just it seems crazy to me. It's like, shouldn't the adults be able to figure this out and work this out? Lynette, it's very parent, difficult. It's not is, it's not a quick fix. But you so have to have the, the right adults, people. But if you see criminals but, and not kids, what she's talking about is under no circumstances should a six or seven year old be labeled a, a ten year old a criminal. But when you're dealing with people who aren't used to us, that they see criminals right off the bat, because this is the same issue we have with the police department. Tamir Rice, remember all of these different issues. So I think we need to make sure that we have people in our schools that love our children, that aren't going to criminalize them, that see the potential in all of them, because all of our kids can be, I believe it. I believe that all of our kids have the potential to solve conflicts and to, and to have a context for understanding this. The love is fine, but we need the expertise. If we don't have Absolutely. the expertise and we just Absolutely. have the emotion, Matthew we get went, nowhere. Absolutely. Sorry. Then again, I wanted to get back to the first point that you said when you were talking about how uh, most conflicts start from bullying. But like my aunt said, it doesn't start from bullying because bullying comes from somewhere. They have to have a reason to bully. It will come from who basically, who so-called runs um, New York City or the U.S., um, the police. Because when people when african-americans like us when we walk out on the street we see cops we first thing we think to do is run or we're afraid we're not like oh, okay they're here to protect us so when get when people when people start seeing shootings of cops of cops shooting african-americans or african even african-americans shooting cops um they start to have a they start to have a mindset of where there's also a criminal piece inside of life so once they have that mindset, they think that's when they start to start to bully so that they can feel like they have a little bit of power in this world instead of 
being the lowest class. Matthew, that, you're, expl you're explaining that so well, but there's also a, a lot of studies, too, that say that, that children who are bullies become that way because of a situation much closer to them on a daily basis at home, that there's, that there's some adult that is or in their family or immediate environment that has, has tormented them, too. Well, these communities have been bullied, and I think that's the important thing to remember. That's if we get to the root to... of it, we're talking about this isn't a new phenomenon. Right. These are the most um, vulnerable. The most vulnerable communities, East New York, man. This, these are some of the most vulnerable communities in the country because when you're dealing with few resources and people scattered over to get these resources, you're going to have drugs, that underground economy we were talking about, the guns being dumped. We are the most vulnerable, so it stands to make it makes sense that our seven, eight, nine-year-olds would bring those issues to the classroom, which is why a culturally responsive educational experience takes that into consideration. They need to be, th our kids need to be thinking like he's thinking and being able to, in classes, to figure this stuff out. Not only to be safe in the classroom, so that they can leave and create those same so kinds of communities. So that's got to be doubly scary for them because then, then they're, they're, they don't feel safe in school, they don't feel safe in the community, they don't feel like there's any adults, period. There's that systemic culture that lies in a lot of these these communities that are socially impoverished. And oftentimes, how do we address that? We think in terms of survival of the fittest. How do we, how do we untangle that web of survival of the fittest and make it be known that, look, there's a, clear there's a clear landscape in terms of everyone has a level of equality. We need to respect one another. And this goes back to, I mean, the earliest pretense of respecting people. And this is a situation where people are not being respected. So when we think about people being bullied, it evolves around the level of respect. And how do we reinstitute that level of respect in our society? Respect. Lynette, what about the, for, for parents? I mean, as a, as a PT, that must have been a a lot, of, a lot of extra work for you being a, the PTA president, and I think it's fantastic that you did it. But, but I think in terms it was of parents, my responsibility. I think we, as a community, need to change the conversation. The conversation doesn't need to be bullying and violence. It needs to be how do we work with our youth, our most precious resources in our community to help them to de-escalate situations, to deal with conflict, bringing in not the police because we know they are already having a challenge with de-escalating in our community. Right. We need to bring in guidance counselors, professionals on conflict resolution, people that can see the hope and see the positive in our youth future and allow them to make mistakes. We're supposed to be the net for when they fall, lift them up, right back on the right, right track. Right. Not criminalize them, zero tolerance, um, tolerance, and that's it. They grow and they start understanding, wait a minute, I'm not being treated fairly. So now how can you as an adult tell me something when you're treating me wrong? They have feelings, and we have to deal with emo everyone's emotional and social development. I think those are some of the solutions that we need to have in our community. So there needs to be really, really, it sounds like what everybody's saying, there almost needs to be kind of like a redesign of school staffing. There needs to be That's another the layer in there. organizational change. There needs to be some kind of other, there needs to be another layer in there of adults. As opposed to quick fix. Zero tolerance. As opposed to rolling right. in the metal because detectors. Because this is the same as the police relations outside. There's no quick fix. And remember, this is multifaceted. It's what happens in one community is not going to equate to what you do in another. So it's an arduous process. It takes smart minds to sit down at the table, but I believe we're fit for the challenge. If we get the right people to sit down, we can get this thing done. Matthew, in terms of, in terms of the school you're at now, how is everything going? Um... 
the school that I go out now, you don't see as much violence as you would see in a public school. Not to say that all public schools are bad, but they when like they they cut it off when they were young. They not to say they had consequences because they don't they don't have consequences. They have reflection. So let's say you were to do something, let's say you were to do something that you know you shouldn't have done, they would sit you down and you will reflect. What could you do better? What could you do next time? How could you help somebody understand not to do that? And basically it helps you learn, helps you learn from all of your mistakes. And not only from your mistakes, but other people's mistakes. That you will go in front of the community. I mean, yeah, we call our school the community. And you would tell them your, you would tell them your situation, what you were going through, what you were thinking. So that way everyone learns from what you did wrong in that situation and what you could have done better and what they can do better next time to help support you so that you won't make the same mistake. So they don't make you feel like you're an outsider because you made a mistake or because you're bad or something's wrong with you? When people make mistakes at my school, it just brings everybody closer. That's incredible. Wow, you, they use it I as think we need that. I was going to no, say, no, absolutely. I think we need One thing we got to take Reflection is the move. Yeah. One thing we got to take in consideration our kids' lives matter. Therefore, you're the actor, producer, and director in your life. Therefore, make your life matter. And no, 100%. I think when kids get in trouble or when somebody makes a mistake, they're quick to blame somebody else on what they did. But if you were to reflect on what you did, I mean, and you take fix, responsibility. You fix your own problems. Right. Because then next time it won't happen again, which will solve all of the problems. As you did. You took responsibility for what happened to you, even though you weren't fully responsible for it. And look at where you're at now. Street soldiers. Street soldiers. <laughs> Holding right. it down. That's right. I didn't want to say at the beginning of the show, our youngest ever guest yeah. on the TV episode of Street yeah. Soldiers. You did an awesome job. Great job. Brian, give us, give us a final word here just, um, just for everybody. Uh, just on the bigger picture. You know, because we got people watching all over the country, all different communities, yeah. too. Just I mean, all of these things, we, we, we have to be intentional about breaking the cycle or the cycle will break us. So this conversation was good. Uh, most schools aren't having it with this level of cultural competence. And just on a bigger picture, um, we need to create jobs. There, you know, uh, there, there's always going to be a relationship with violence when you have communities that are underemployed and have as many issues. We're seeing gentrification is pushing people out, homelessness. So, yeah, we need these models, but we also have to do some systematic work to make sure that so many of our kids that look like us aren't born into poverty because poverty is makes you vulnerable to all of these things more so. And we know that it happens in every community, but one thing we always say is, I want my grandma used to say, what gives black people, what gives white people a cold gives black people pneumonia, black and brown people. Right. So violence is hurting everyone, but we're the most vulnerable because of our history and the legacy that, 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 that we have here in America. All right, well, I want to thank all of you for being with us uh, for this episode of Street Soldiers. Dr. Darren Porcher, Brian Favors, Matthew and Lynette Townsley, thank you so much for being with us. And remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. I'm Lisa Evers. Let's push for peace.